So welcome to the Alfred Health Emergency Podcast. My name is Mike Noonan and uh, back with us, we have uh, Associate Professor Jared O'Reilly and uh, Dr. Rob Mitchell. Welcome, guys. Hi, Mike. Great to be back. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? The hey, nice Rob. thing about today is that I can actually see your faces. We've, uh, we've tweaked the technology and um, live from uh, outer space, I see Professor O'Reilly coming through. So nice to see your happy face, Professor O'Reilly. Thank you, Mike. Um, Apologies that you have to look at mine as well, Mike. I, w- I wasn't going to say anything, Rob. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'll take that as a given. You're so polite. You, you, you have to you have to endure me as well, mate. Um, now we've uh, made a couple of podcasts in this series about COVID, and uh, one of the questions that we raised uh, in the last podcast, in fact, was the question around the burden of isolation. Now. Um, Clearly, we've seen changes in um, COVID-19 across Australasia. And uh, unfortunately, we currently um, all live in a COVID hotspot here in Melbourne, Victoria. And uh, uh, one of the questions that we raised before we became a COVID hotspot with this resurgence of, of the disease in our area was, was around the burden of isolation. And uh, I think we were all feeling at that time that uh, that concern that we had that um, the burden of isolation may in, in some respects actually outweigh the burden of the z- disease. Um, unfortunately, that was a good situation we found ourselves in to some extent, but uh, um, suffice to say that COVID still exists, but the isolation burden still exists. And um, Jared, Rob, uh, you guys have been working hard on a research piece now, which has been published, which looks directly at this question. Joe, can you talk us through what that research question was? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So, and you've prefaced it to some extent, but uh, the, the reason for it, um, before we, when we were looking at and have, are still looking at COVID-19 in EDs in particular, we were comparing those with, uh, of those with suspected COVID, getting a test for COVID in the ED. We were comparing those who ended up having a positive result or a negative result. At the time, there was such a small proportion that had a positive result and the isolation burden was huge. And in fact, it was probably a quarter of the patients, certainly in our site, and I suspect many other sites uh, were being isolated for suspected COVID. So we expanded what we were doing. We created a new database in REDCAP, which was the Registry for Emergency Care at the Alfred. Uh, and that was to compare all patients, really, and particularly in this case, to answer this specific question to begin with, was uh, amongst uh, all patients in the ED, and we looked particularly at those that were Category 1 and Category 2 for this study. What's the impact of being isolated versus not being isolated on length of stay, in particular, as the primary outcome? And in this case, ED length of stay was a, was a proxy for getting to... Uh, definitive care or life-saving care uh, as quickly as possible. So that was our question. And Rob, can you talk us through um, what the findings were? Absolutely. I mean, I'll leave Jared to talk you through the detailed stats because, as you know, he's the biostatistics uh, wizard in the team. Um, but the, the take-home finding is that among this sample of patients, which, as Jared mentioned, included all Category 1 and 2 presentations in this two-week period in May, 
there was a significant increase in length of stay for the ED length of stay for the group that was isolated. Um, so to put some numbers around that, the median ED length of stay for the isolation group was 259 minutes. And for the group that wasn't uh, isolated, it was 204 minutes. Now, a, a difference of 55 minutes. To put that another way, uh, isolation was independently associated with a, a 23% increase in ED length of stay and more than doubled the chance that, that you would spend more than four hours in the emergency department as a patient. So a fairly significant impact, I think you'd agree. And these were CAT 1s and 2 patients. So these were potentially our sickest patients and potentially patients that for us, we may want to move to a different area of definitive care outside the emergency department. How yeah. would you read these results, Jared, if you are on the clinical floor tomorrow? What, what does that actually mean for your clinical practice? Well, being in the ED for an extra hour, if you're a CAT1 or CAT2 needing to be somewhere else, probably, it seems like a big deal to me. And this is, to those that are listening, this may not be news, everyone... We may have people thinking, as we did, oh, yes, we knew that was a burden. It was such a, it's been such a huge burden. This is not news to us. But until this time, it was anecdotal. We all had the sense of the burden. We all had a sense that it was difficult to get access to patients requiring isolation. What it meant in terms of donning and doffing, what it meant in terms of taking vital signs or giving appropriate nursing care, analgesia, uh, accessing a patient at these times. We all sense that risk. This really puts some numbers on it, and the numbers are, are really clinically significant as a, as a clinician. I think this is important. I'm seeing it every day, and now I know it, that it has been the case, not just for the patients I'm seeing, but everyone's patients. And Rob, what do you think this adds in terms of the approach to fixing what we think is a problem? So clearly, access for those patients can potentially be an issue. We uh, have seen that through... Uh, research that's been done in Australia and elsewhere around time to disposition from emergency departments. How can we leverage improvement through these numbers, do you think? Uh, great question, Mike. I mean, I think this piece of research does a couple of things. First, it gives us some numbers from which we can advocate for better system performance. It's very hard to put your case, I think, to push for systems improvements if you can't back your case up with some figures. So, you know, fortunately, we've, we've been able to do that here. I, I think even though, as, as Jared said, this, uh, this study really just confirms what we uh, anecdotally know to be true. But I think it, it will allow us to establish some targets, if you like, in, in formal even, around how we can improve timeliness of care and timeliness of transfer to the site of definitive care for patients who are isolated. I think it's just a reminder to all of us as clinicians that if we have isolated patients, isolated by virtue of their uh, COVID or COVID status, who need some sort of time critical intervention, then we really need to be conscious of that. And we need, really need to do what we can as individual clinicians to advocate that patient to move through their hospital journey in a, in a time efficient and a time critical way. I think part of the solution, Mike, is, as Rob said, being cognizant of the challenge around our patients being isolated. Part of the challenge is getting that message, not just to clinicians, but to their organisational policy makers. I think that's a, a really important thing to be doing. And it does really put the emphasis on getting people out of isolation as quickly as possible. So rapid testing, rapid but valid testing is, is a really important tool for us and having the tools in the ED in particular to, to reverse isolation once it's determined that it's not indicated anymore. I think this is really important. So it's one thing to be isolated in the ED, but it's another thing to be isolated 
for the whole of the ED stay. So if we can change that through access to rapid, effective, valid testing led by the senior clinicians in the ED, I think that'll be really important for patient care. And of course, there are you know significant implications at a, at a hospital or a system level as well, Mike. I mean, really what we, we need to do with this data is, is have a conversation with our patient flow managers and hospital executive to point out that this is a real issue and, and having sufficient isolation capacity within the hospital to deal with those patients who can't be de-isolated, for want of a better word, in the emergency department is really critical. You know, there's been a huge amount of effort across Australian hospitals to create surge capacity. And I, I, you know, I think universally that has been very, very impressive. And I'm certainly been impressed with our hospital's effort in that respect. But, I, you know, these uh, figures just testify that the, the re- very real challenges associated with having sufficient isolation capacity within a hospital, um, the fact that we constantly need to review how we are doing business and constantly seek to innovate to uh, establish additional capacity for uh, maintaining these sorts of infection, necessary infection prevention and control strategies for patients throughout their stay when it when it's indicated. I think also, and following on from the impact that Rob's talking to here, is that this is not going to be an issue for a short time. This is going to be an issue for a long time. So the surge in cases of COVID-19 in Melbourne in particular, and whatever happens across Australia over the months ahead, and the possibility of future surges, we know that On the other side of every wave, there will be long periods, months, where we are testing patients and isolating them for suspected COVID, potentially with very few being COVID positive, but certainly with a huge burden of potentially more than 25 to 30% of patients being isolated. That's a big burden on the system. Well, as you point out, Jared, it's not a problem that's going away, is it? I mean, um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure I like the term the new normal or or the COVID normal, but, you know, this is a reality for now. You know, a large portion of uh, patients uh, presenting to EDs will meet uh, testing criteria or, or, or criteria for being a suspected COVID case. And therefore, at least at the start of their uh, ED or hospital journey require isolation. So this needs to trigger, you know, some really big reforms, I think, for how we do business in emergency departments and how, in fact, we manage the entire acute care journey or process, if you like. Uh, I mean, I think as a community, we are need to, we will need to do some fundamental rethinking of how we design our EDs, how we build systems and processes um, that allow us to provide a time-efficient care in uh, an era where a large proportion of our patients uh, require airborne precautions. Congratulations to you both on working with your teams to produce such an important piece of work. And I think this is a single site study, but obviously as a project, this has branched out now and now is encompassing a number of other sites, Jared. And hopefully in upcoming podcasts, we'll be able to to bring some of those sites on and, and talk to this and, and other issues. And, and I think importantly, this was the clinical question that we had at the last podcast and it's already been answered and, and published. So I think it's a really great testament also to the processes, not only internally from you and our research group, but also for things like Emergency Medicine Australasia, where this is published to be able to rapidly turn around this sort of research. So I think it's a really good innovation. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And you're absolutely right. We would welcome it. And I think others would welcome to be able to answer this question beyond this single site. So we'd welcome participation and collaboration with others for this, as we have had for the COVID project. Uh, We look forward to that. And I really do want to thank the whole team. This is not just myself and Rob, it's it's you, Mike, and it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of others working in the ED, both 
to feed this back into the clinical system, which is really important. Uh, it makes research useful in a timely fashion. And there's lots of people working in terms of uh, inputting the data to support this information coming out. So we're grateful to many people. It's a huge team that's involved. And we look forward to answering more and more questions as we go forward with this registry for emergency care. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Rob. Until next time, no doubt there will be more clinical questions and you guys seem to be coming up with the answers. So I look forward to it. Take it easy, Mark. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys.